Welcome to Twin Peaks Radio, the show where we remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, a real mystery can't be solved. Not completely. It's always just out of reach, like a light around the corner. You might catch a glimpse of what it reveals, feel its warmth, but you can't know the heart of it. Not really. That's what gives it value. It can't be cracked. It's bigger than you and me, bigger than everything we know. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and today, we continue into the pilot. We'll cover more than just one shot this time. Let's try that. We go from Josie, her lamp, her mirror. She's humming something. I'm not sure what. She tilts her head, looks at herself in the mirror, and we go to Pete. He kisses his hand, touches Catherine's ear? Does he put the kiss on her ear? Maybe her cheek, but in, I was going to say in the script, but Pete doesn't say anything here in the thing. We don't see Catherine because we had Josie and she hears Pete driving off. So there's none of this interaction with Catherine. I think it's better that we get the interaction with Catherine because we're getting more characterization of these people who we don't know. At this point, we don't know anything about Josie, but we should get the impression there's some sort of relationship between Pete and Catherine that we don't know what. She's sitting in a kitchen. I believe this is actually one of the front desk spaces at Keanu Lodge. But they hang some pans and make it a kitchen, and Catherine's behind the counter. Pete's got a little basket hanging from his belt. He just grabbed a thermos, and he says, gone fishing. He doesn't say going fishing, which is good, because this isn't the best source, I guess, but Info Bloom says, Gone fishing is an English idiom that is used in reference to someone who is completely unaware of all that is going on in his or her immediate surroundings. Today I want to get us to Andy crying, really. Going to that punctum thing from last time, it's a big deal. But I don't want to rush past some of the other parts, because these matter to what's happening and to the setup. Gone fishing, he's unaware, and yet he's the one who is about to be the first aware of what is going on. He leaves. We cut to Josie turning like she heard the door. There's no truck, though, because he just walks. Josie's still humming. And then we go to Pete walking. I just walked in this very space just a few weeks ago. And we can see the body by the log before he notices it. But maybe we don't notice it's out of place. It's just plastic. It could be just whatever that floated up. We don't have any names yet. I want to talk about naming today as well. But going forward, we hear, I think, the, the second uh, sound of, I don't forget what you call that there, horn. Oh, I guess the foghorn. Pete says, lonesome foghorn blows. And it's like he turns, I think we hear, we hear bird sounds before he turns, so it's almost like he turns to see the birds. Or he knows that something's wrong. He turns, sees something, and then we go to a close-up, well, closer. So we can see there's something wrapped in plastic. Pete walking past the Keanu Lodge, setting down his stuff. He climbs over that wall and goes down to the rocks. He's cautious. We see there's a body by the big log. Well, not the big log that I did a whole episode on, different log. The long blonde hair and Pete on the phone talking to himself, oh dear. And then we get the first name of the show. Yeah, we don't know Pete's name yet. We get Lucy. Gee, of course, Lucy Moran. What do we got on Lucy? Why is she named Lucy? And my immediate thought with the name Lucy was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. 
Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, often cited as a reference to LSD, even though John Lennon says the name came from a drawing that his kid did. It wasn't about LSD. It's supposed to relate to Alice in Wonderland, which could be a dream. I remember the Encyclopedia of Fantasy had a thing about Wonderlands, places where the reality is not as real as other places. Magical things happen, and things that are strange and unusual, like Alice in Wonderland. Stuff that wouldn't work in a regular, more down-to-earth, <laughs> as it were, fantasy book. But why is Lucy called Lucy? Why is her last name Moran? I wasn't sure if she was named after anything specific, but Lucy made me think of that. And getting to Alice in Wonderland from there is getting to drugs and everything else. And then Moran, the thing I found, I don't know that it comes from this, but just something I found, was a silent film from 1922 called Moran of the Lady Letty which was about a, this is the ship captain's daughter. Her name is Moran. She's grown up around ships, can handle herself on the water as well as any man. Except I guess the main character of the story is not even her. It's about some guy named Ramon Laredo. And there's a Scandinavian ship in distress. And I wonder if, I wonder, see, then I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. And I'm trying to make connections where there are connections. And then I feel like one of those Twin Peaks fans that I always complain about because Scandinavian ship in disaster, and I'm like, ooh, Scandinavians, there's no regions here. It doesn't have to mean anything. There's one upcoming on names that I do think means something. Before we get there, we gotta go to Pete Martell. I don't know that Pete Martell's named after either of these things, but there was a Italian film actor who usually went by the name Peter Martell. His birth name was Pietro Martellanza. He started his career as a stuntman, worked in the 60s and 70s, and was in a lot of movies. <laughs> was he in a movie in particular where it would make sense that Lynch is referencing him? I don't know. He's got 43 acting credits from 1963. Most of his are up to 76. A couple in the 80s. One in 91. And then six other credits from 2002 to 2012. That's one. And then I'm like... Or maybe Martel is a reference to Martel Cognac. I don't know. Is Lynch a drinker? Hmm. So I get stuck, because I think names are references to things, and they're not always. He says, let's put Harry on the horn. Now, of course, in the script, Harry was Dan. Dan Stedman, which is a name that 
isn't named after anything, but it's a little on the nose. Steadman. Steady man. But Harry Truman is even more on the nose. Sort of, and it's not necessarily referenced to the Harry Truman as far as what he's like, what he thinks, what he does. But it gives you the sense that he's this guy who's always had to deal with the fact that everyone knows his name. And he's the sheriff, so everyone does know his name. In his town of 5,000 people, he is uh, one of its most popular people. Like Laura. We don't know her name yet, though, do we? We don't get in the script the whole thing from Lucy. Sheriff, it's Pete Martell up at the mill. Um, I'm going to transfer it to the phone on the table by the red chair. The, the red chair against the wall. Uh, the little table with the lamp on it. The lamp that we moved from the corner. The black phone. Not the brown phone. Which, I think people try to find meaning in that too, but since it doesn't necessarily come from the script, it's more about like, maybe on the spot thing they decided for Lucy. This, this gives us a sense of her character. She's a bit, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the right word. Her and Andy are these sort of fools. If this were a Shakespearean story, they'd be the fools. They're here for comedy, more than anyone else. Sherman answers it. Morning, Pete. Harry. And Pete says a line that all Twin Peaks fans know and people that aren't obsessed with the show know. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. He doesn't say who, because he didn't check. He knows it's a she from the hair, shape of the body, through the plastic. Sheriff Truman says, well, hold on, hold on a second, Pete, where? Stay right there, I'm, I'm not I don't need to go through all the dialogue. And I'll deal with some other names later. I couldn't figure out a specific reference for Doc Hayward. So I'll get to it later. I'll talk about the Packard Mill and some of its history from the secret history later. Because at this point we aren't seeing the mill. It goes back to the geography that I talked about in, before I even got to the pilot episode. They're saying they're at the mill, but they're not at the mill. I mean, Packard House being near the mill is fine. I guess they live right next to the mill. That might be a, not really a problem until we get to the fire. But they're supposed to rouse Andy out of bed. And then he tells Lucy we got a body up there. Not a word about this to anyone until you've heard from me. Actually, it's interesting now, paying attention more specifically to the dialogue. It's not just that they're going to the mill, when it should be the house, but also the dock right below the dam. Where's the dam? There's a dam. That's not on anyone's maps. It's not on the semi-official maps from the guide. And the way we saw the water... Wow. Directions get mixed up here. A quick correction. There is actually a Black Lake Dam right by the Packard Mill on the back cover of the Access Guide. So, it was on one of the maps. I just missed it. Look at the exterior of the Sheriff's Station. Dirtfish Driving School. Was it Dirtfish at the time? I know it was Dirtfish by the time they filmed The Return. I think it was Dirtfish back then, too. Can we see the factory in the reflection in the glass? Maybe. Because the exteriors we've seen for the mill are about 100, 150 yards from here. In the script, Stedman has a souped-up Diamond County Sheriff's Department cruiser. It's a nitpick of films I have a lot where they mix up what local police and sheriff are. Twin Peaks is the name of the town, so it shouldn't have a sheriff by modern parlance. It should have a local police, not a sheriff. The sheriff should be for the county. So, the script is correct. Diamond County makes sense. But they wanted to be Twin Peaks on the name. So, Twin Peaks is the county as well. 
Instead of his car, though, he's got his Bronco with the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department logo on the side. He drives off amusingly since I was just there. He drives the wrong way to leave. We see Josie and Catherine outside, standing on the porch, I guess, of the Keanu Lodge. Josie's in a fur coat. Catherine's in something that might just be a really nice robe. They're bundled up. It's cold. It's February in northern Washington. Yeah, it's cold. Doc Hayward and Sheriff Truman go to the body. Pete stands apart from it. Saw a thing recently on the behind the scenes here where they were filming. They filmed most of the close-ups away from the log. I guess so they had room for the crew and the cameraman and everything else to move around. And so it was up, maybe like 10, 20 yards north of the spot where the body is by the log. They had a tracking shot down the body. Definitely female. Stripped of all but her underwear. Face down. Hayward asks, you want forensics first? German says, no, she's been in the water. Hayward says, better take some pictures. And Andy arrives. Who is she? Andy pictures. And this is the part I wanted to get to for today. Because Andy takes a picture from up by the head. Moves around, crouches down. Closer photo. And then he starts to cry. Doc and Sheriff look at each other. Hayward says, oh, Andy. And then Truman says, come on, Andy. Same thing as last year at Mr. Blodgett's barn. We never learn what happened at Mr. Blodgett's barn. It doesn't tie into the plot. It's not one of those weird things that connects with Firewalk with me or somewhere else. We don't know what it is. But I was wondering if the name meant something. Because it's straight out of the script. Mr. Blodgett's barn. And so, then I go down another rabbit hole. I find Delos A. Blodgett, the lumberman and capitalist in Vermont. And I'm like, eh, that's probably not it. But it's interesting. And then I find, because Lynch does love to name characters after film characters, the main character of A Star is Born, played by none other than Judy Garland, this is the 1954 Star is Born, is named Esther Blodgett. So, we haven't met Rylan Briggs yet, we haven't heard about Judy, but we've already got an indirect reference to Judy Garland. So we've gone from Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, Alice in Wonderland, to Judy Garland. I wanted to share this one other thing that I thought was interesting that I found here. This is from Stephen King's novel, Needful Things. Norris Ridgwick arrived at the sheriff's office in his street clothes about 10 minutes before the noon whistle blew at the mill. He had the mid-shift from 12 until 9 p.m. right through the weekend, and that was just the way he liked it. But somebody else cleaned up the messes on the highways and byways of Castle County after the bars closed at 1 o'clock. He could do it. Had done it on many occasions but he almost always puked his guts. He sometimes puked his guts even if the victims were up, walking around, and yelling that they didn't have to take any fucking breathalyzer test. They knew their constipational rights. Norris just had that kind of stomach. Sheila Brigham liked to tease him by saying he was like Deputy Andy on that TV show, Twin Peaks. But Norris knew he wasn't. Deputy Andy cried when he saw dead people. Norris didn't cry, but he was apt to puke on them. The way he'd almost puked on Homer Gamache that time when he had found Homer sprawled in a ditch out by Homeland Cemetery, beaten to death with his own artificial arm. Remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, mystery is the most essential ingredient of life. Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com. Follow the show on Twitter at Peaks Radio. 
and on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok at Twin Peaks Radio. Or join the Facebook group, Let Me Drop Studio Tour. The owls may not be what they seem, but they still serve an imperative function. They remind us to look into the darkness.